if you ache for truth, goodness, and beauty, if you're hungry for a Christianity with substance and strength, if you long for a faith that's big and bold and biblical and all about Jesus Christ, if you're inspired by the idea of one church that has spanned 20 centuries, 24 time zones, and two hemispheres, enfolding every race, nation, and language, then you're considering Catholicism. In the last episode, you met my Protestant friend, Ed. I've known Ed for 20 years or so, from back in my Protestant days, when I was on the teaching team at a non-denominational church and he was part of our music program. Ed has spent a big part of his career working in music ministries in a variety of Protestant churches, and he's been around church staffs and preachers most of his life. But as he explained in his last episode, he's grown restless and dissatisfied with his faith and Christianity as he experienced it. He's looking for something more. He just doesn't know what it is and hasn't found it yet. When I left that world and entered the Catholic Church, he got curious about Catholicism. And over the last few months, he and I started getting together for lunch in little Mexican diners, which is our favorite kind of place, to talk about church and faith and what it means to follow Jesus. Now, this isn't a setup. Ed isn't a character in a play. He's a real-life person considering Catholicism, and he agreed to share his exploration of it in real time on this podcast. We started recording our conversations, and we're calling them Church Chats with Greg and Ed. Now, I hope that you'll find it helpful to be sitting at the table with us during these evangelistic conversations. Because if you're on Ed's side of the table, maybe this will answer some of your questions. And if you're on my side of the table, maybe this will help you learn how to share your Catholic faith with a friend of yours. In this session, I did my best to answer some of Ed's questions about the Catholic faith. We talk about the difference between Protestant and Catholic approaches to prayer and the sacraments. Ed asks about confession and purgatory. We talk about whether it's true that love wins and why Protestantism feels like a nutrition shake while Catholicism feels like going to the supermarket. So take a listen and please subscribe to the podcast so that you don't miss our future conversations. We've got some pretty cool things planned like taking Ed to his first Catholic Mass and recording his reactions, plus lots of interviews with other interesting guests, topics, and explorations of Catholicism. Welcome to Church Chats with Greg and Ed, where Greg and his Protestant friend Ed chat about the church. Hey Ed, man, I'm I'm glad we could get together again and uh, and, and keep these conversations uh, going about Catholicism. And so the last time that we uh, talked, you were sharing for the podcast for the listeners about how frustrated and disillusioned you sort of became over time and all of your experiences in the Protestant world. You know, from your remember Baptist upbringing, uh, the Pentecostal or Charismatic churches. Uh, you know, evangelical mega seeker church movement all the way to our little hip and groovy downtown coffee house church that we met in, right? Right. Uh, it, uh, in short, it sort of has, has felt to me now or feels like uh, like an endless circle. You know, I'm just in it and I don't, I, I 
I just keep coming around and I can't get out. Yeah, yeah. And then along the way, um, somewhere in here, and you started alluding to it last time, you became curious about Catholicism. And, yeah. and you know, from what you said in our last episode, and what we, you've talked about, you know, offline and whatnot, it, it felt to you like maybe it was a way, a pathway through some of the dilemmas that you, you, you experienced in Protestantism. Yeah, it definitely started to look like maybe there's something here, you know, uh, that I have not allowed allowed in. And uh, uh, there were things that prompted me to investigate it. You know, I knew you had converted to Catholicism. And so, you know, we, I was, I was, maybe I was trying a little bit not to talk to you about this because I was afraid that, you know, you'd be right. Um, uh, That's so, what my wife fears all the time. Yeah. Uh, um, and so I'm, cur- but I'm, so I'm curious. I mean, I'm right. intrigued. I, I, I want to know more. Right. Let's talk a little bit more ab- about that. You know, that you thought that the Catholic church might solve in a sense, some of the problems that you saw or you felt, uh, in your Protestant experiences. Right. Yeah. I started, you know, I just started researching. I'm, I'm reading books and you, mm-hmm. <clears throat> you suggested I, I read Chesterton and you're not the only person who suggested that. And right. So I, I read a couple of his books and I that was pretty heavy, but I he's a hard guy to argue with, you know. Um, uh, and I, I I have to admit it's it's starting to kind of look that way. Picture me, you know, standing on the outside, just sort of like, oh, I'll come in when I feel like it, you know. But it smells pretty good. Food smells pretty good in there. <laughs> right. um, so I thought that I think it was a Chesterton thing that he said that orthodoxy is what he called it, but right. historic Christianity, Catholicism were keys that unlocked everything for mm-hmm. him. Uh, I, I love the way he said that. Yeah, I, I mean, Chesterton played a, reading Chesterton played a huge part in my own conversion, on my own road to Rome. And I, I remember that. And that, that was, it felt to me like an apt description because as I sort of wrestled with sort of theological problems and biblical issues and some of these things, I was like, man, how do I sort of solve those? And all of a sudden I would, you know, the, it was almost like that, the Catholicism not the key or the combination it sort of unlocked the dilemma. So, yeah. So, you know, well, well, they're, well, they're right about that one thing, but then everything else, well, okay. But they're, they're also right about that. Thing. <laughs> right, yeah. right. Right. So, so what are some of the things that do you feel like Catholicism, at least at this point in your journey is, is sort of unlocking for you? All right. So here's a good example. Uh, prayer um, with, with Protestantism's individualized approach to everything mm-hmm. and it's avoidance of, Vain repetition. I have heard that all of my life. That's the big knock on the Catholics. Well, it's the vain repetition. They're saying those prayers over (laughs) and over. I've struggled all my life how to how to pray for something that I want to ask about. You know, over and over. Pray uh, uh, like I want somebody to. I want somebody to get over being sick, or I. You know, I'm uh, praying for a friend who's got a problem. You know, Um, how do I ask about or praying for my own kids? You know, I want the same basic things for them all the time. How do I? how do I ask about that over and over without it being vain repetition? It just feels wrong. But how many ways can I come up with to keep my prayers feeling fresh? Right. Uh, and it's just endlessly frustrating. I, you know, I feel like a loser because, well, I, I just don't want to repeat myself, but I, I can't come up with anything new to say. Right. right. I'm, now I feel like I'm, you know, trying to impress God with how clever I am right. or how creative I am. So there I am praying the same basic thing and pretty much apologizing to God for being repetitious and it looks to me like maybe the Catholic Church offers help in that way uh, and permission 
at the very least, to, to pray what I would have dismissed as prepackaged right. prayers. Well, I, like, I, I think there's a couple of things going on here. I mean, first of all, yeah, you know, they take this one um, comment that Jesus makes that says, don't be like the pagans. And he's referring to like the Greek and Roman pagans right. who, you know, go through these sort of pagan rituals mm -hmm. and uh, you know that you know certainly you know about are valid points that jesus makes and we don't want anything that feels like pagan ritual but you know first of all jesus tells a parable about you know the persistent widow who keeps praying over and over and over again that always and, bothered know, me right and so the thing is is you're right so repetition in and of itself i mean uh and we know that within the jewish the jewish faith that jesus practiced and the early christian faith there were certain prayers that you prayed frequently right. or often right right so the repetition thing seems a little squishy to me and then the vain thing well it's vain if you don't mean it <laughs> right? <laughs> right uh but if i wake up every day and pray for my you know my sick you know, grandma or my wandering child or, you know, or right. somebody to get better. That's not vain repetition. That's, that's being persistent. Right. right. But the issue is, is that, and like I hear you say, and we've talked about this before, and it was an issue for me was the notion that you have these, what you call prepackaged prayers in Catholicism. And I, and I remember thinking, wow, can you just sort of read these prepackaged prayers? Don't you have to sort of make it up as you go along? But then it occurred to me somewhere along the way, I'm only supposed to accept what's in the Bible, right? Because out of this Protestant context of Sola Scriptura. So it has to be something that's in the Bible, comes straight from Scripture. Well, the Bible's full of prayers. So why shouldn't I pray the prayers that come directly off the pages of the Bible? Right. If I'm into Sola Scriptura, nothing but the Bible, right. why wouldn't my prayers, wouldn't be the, 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 the best bet be to pray right. the words of Scripture? You know, the most obvious one would be the Lord's Prayer, the Our Father, right. right? So that's really biblical. You know, when the disciples asked Jesus to teach them to pray, he said, well, pray like this. So why wouldn't they do that? And, and, uh, and the Psalms, the Psalms are actually all prayers. And in the Catholic Church from the beginning, or there was the, there's the tradition of praying the Psalms as prayers. Right. So that's what they were written as, as prayers. So why wouldn't I pray the words of Scripture? And, and there's numerous other prayers that are recorded in the Old and New Testament. And, and when I realized that many, when I began to research it, that many of the most basic Catholic prayers were basically just excerpts or compilations of right. biblical passages, I was like, well, to be biblical, why wouldn't I pray those biblical passages? Which is what right. most of the Catholic prayers are. So I mean, right? And I'm not, you know, and I'm not saying that my Protestant friends that they don't mean it. Of course they mean it. So another one would be another key would be a means of grace, <clears throat> something I had never run across or didn't understand until I started hearing it. I feel like all my life I've been pushed to change, to be more like Jesus, right? To be uh, sanctified, to use a, I don't know if that's a Protestant word or not, but. Uh, but when it comes to how or what exactly do I do, maybe it's just me, but I feel like I haven't gotten much guidance there. I feel like I'm, uh, I'm you know, they, I, I'm supposed to read my Bible and pray, and maybe I find an accountability partner or something. That's, that's just so 90s, isn't it? Um, <laughs> but beyond that, what? Just pray really, really hard? I, I don't see how it works at all, other than praying and reading and, you know, trying so here again, the Catholic Church tells me how this is happening through the sacraments, as I understand it. Yeah, right. I mean, look, there's, there is a Protestant slander, and I don't think that's too strong of a word, that the Catholic Church doesn't believe we're saved by grace. To be 
perfectly clear. The Catholic Church does not, never has, and never will taught that we save ourselves. It only teaches that we're saved by faith in the death and resurrection of Christ. But how do we come to that faith, that saving faith? Where do we meet Christ? And it's funny because in the contemporary worship services that, you know, we used to be a part of, you know, you meet him in the singing of the songs, right? I mean, so there's a sense of how do you encounter him, right? Right. Uh, Everybody has that question. There are these questions. How do you meet Christ? Where do you meet him? How do you express that saving faith? How does that saving faith uh, get imparted into our hearts? What, What do we do next after we accept Christ? How do we live out that? How do we become uh, mature in the faith? How do we grow? How do we live in grace? And and what I found was that the sacramental approach of the Catholic Church was so much more biblical and so much more tangible than the sort of like internalized journey or sort of internalized path that I just sort of emotionally feel that I know Jesus that evangelicalism some authors. And I'm not saving myself, but I'm, it's, it's, it's giving me a tangible path to turn this, this, the grace of Christ in my life into, into tangible action. Tangible is a great word uh, for that. I'm glad you used that. That's what I felt like I've, I've been missing, you know, and the structure of it. I used to just chafe at the structure. I, when I was in the, uh, the charismatic church, we would do two-hour services that had no structure at all. And I used to think, oh, yeah, this is really real. And the, even even in the church growth movement, evangelical thing, you know, we were proud of not having a, lit, a liturgy. <laughs> uh, it was pointed out to me one time that somebody said, "Well, are you doing a song, and then a, and then a, and then a drama, and then a sermon, and then another song?" Well, yeah, well, yeah, you that's, have a liturgy. That's, that's your liturgy. <laughs> that's your liturgy. Right. He's not calling it that, right? You know, you come out and you sing four praise songs. The guy does an right. announcements. Uh, yeah. There's a video package, and then there's the the teaching message, right. and then there's the the, the right. slow song, and then people walk out. I mean, so you know, it is about tangibility. It is about making something real. You know, in some future episode, right. we'll talk about this because it's interesting when you actually look in Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, whatever, the Gospels, the Epistles. Uh, letters of Paul, whatnot, there's always this sense of tangibility. How do we turn, how do we make Christ real? Right. How, how, how does that incarnate in our lives in real practical ways? And, you know, so searching for that, you know, is important. And, and what I found, and I think the tipping point for me was realizing that the sacramental path, that the sacraments are the ways, the touchstones mm-hmm. are sort of like, you know, if you think about like a, a baseball diamond that you have to run around and hit and touch the bases as right. you go around it. Now, the sacraments as we go through life are, are things that we touch along the, around the, the bases to sort of tag off, to say, yes, I'm encountering Jesus. I'm, I'm appropriating the faith of Christ in my life. I'm growing and maturing in my faith. Right. Well, in every other area in my life, I benefit from structure. Right. Uh, even sometimes the more rigid, the, the better. And my wife is far better at this than I am. And she will point this out to me, you know, Honey, just do it the same way every time, or let's just do this, and, and you won't have to reinvent, you know, whatever. I was talking to another another uh, friend who converted from the evangelical world to the Protestant world, and he said sort of an epiphany for him was he used to say, I don't know, who needs structure in the Christian life? And he said, after sort of flailing around, feeling like I never was getting any better at it. I was never growing right. as a Christian. I just was right. like always just sort of flailing around. He said it came to him, he kind of almost like woke up one day and said, who needs structure in their faith? I, I do. Right. I, I need to know, that's not saving myself. It's not about like 
you know, believing that you save yourself by works. It's just, how do I organize my relationship with, you know, Christ? How do I organize my faith? How do I grow in my faith in tangible, real ways? Right. And and it also provides a way of sorts of, of sort of measuring your progress. Yeah. I mean, you know, am I getting any better at this? I don't know. I feel better at this. I would hope that I'm getting better at it, that I'm growing and maturing. Uh, another one for me would be uh, confession, mm. which uh, I also now know to call reconciliation, and I need to learn more about that in the Protestant church. So, so I confess my sins to God, and, but it's just me, mm. just me, sort of engaging in a, a rambling dialogue. Okay, I did this. I'm really sorry. Um, am I okay now? And then I ask myself, and this is oh so Protestant. Yeah. Did I really mean it? Right. Like, did my confession take? Right. Did I really, is this, is this, did I, you know, I got to go back and do it again because I didn't feel, I didn't feel it, you right. know, right. and if, and with the structure that I understand comes with confession and reconciliation, mm-hmm. uh, you don't have to decide that for yourself. Yeah. You right. have help with that. Exactly. You know? I mean, I, I want to actually, one of these days we'll have a, a whole separate conversation for an episode just about, about this, the sacrament of confession or reconciliation as it's called. Uh, real quickly, confession is what we do right? So we go to confession, we confess our sins. Reconciliation is the sacrament where we are reconciled, right? Right. So in the NSS, the confessing part is our, is our part. The reconciliation is the outcome. Right. We become reconciled right. with God. And it's super important in a lot of levels. And it was hugely attractive to me as I was kind of going down my road to Rome. And I honestly, I couldn't wait to go to my first confession. I mean, not because like, oh, gee, I can't wait to, but I just wanted to be able to come in and to be able to experience that of knowing there was a tangible place that I could in a God-ordained way come Mm -hmm. in, in a sense, lay my heart on the altar before God and hear that I've been reconciled with him. And so, yeah, we'll we'll talk about that more. Uh, Purgatory. Mm -hmm. It's another great key that fits. I've been... uh, we, I worked through, I went to your class on, on Dante's uh, Divine Comedy, <laughs> yeah. and uh, there was a lot of meat on the bone there. And I've never got a good answer to the question. So when I die and I enter into eternity, I'm, I'm sinless. So what, what changes? I mean, I'm, I'm sinless. I draw my final breath here, and uh, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm a sinner. And uh, I go to the next life, and I'm just not. And I would ask, well, yeah, but how does that work? And... You know, if that's true, what's the point of working on my holiness now? It seems like a lot of effort for nothing. If I'm just going to automatically be that way anyway, it just right. seems like it doesn't make any sense to me. So yeah, we'll we'll explore that some more some other time. Like one. you said, we talked about the class, but but here, real quick, I mean, I think I think what's ultimately at stake here is God's holiness and justice, right? I mean, mm-hmm. so even my I, I come out of my Calvinist background, right? So even as my you know my Calvinist background, you say we need to be you know holy to stand before a holy God. Um, and in the older language, you know, Calvin and Luther and those guys, uh, they would talk about being saved by Christ, but need justified by Christ, but need to be sanctified. But I came to realize that evangelical Protestantism, like it didn't take sanctification seriously. It was like, I've I've accepted Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior. I'm going to wake up every day and flail around and sin. And it's okay because God loves me. Right. And as long as I kind of feel some sorrow for that. And then when I die, it you know, it's all better. Right. And I, and so, 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 um, I never get there. I never, uh, I never grow. I never mature. Right. So a sort of a dovetails right into being saved by grace alone, which I feel like is another entire topic, yeah. but it's as if in my Protestant life, I felt like God's grace is like a zero sum game. So if I have anything, if I play any part of my own salvation, even the act of accepting God's grace is, is like somehow, uh, an affront 
to God or a front to the grace, right. you know what I mean? And an attempt to compete with it, right. uh, I guess. And God's, uh, the Catholic Church apparently says, it looks to me like God's grace as well as our own contribution of accepting it and going along with it and, you know, whatever. And in my opinion, this this leads to all kinds of apathy and slack behavior. I'm starting to think this is like, this approach is partly responsible for the current easiness with sinful lifestyles. Oh, right. Jesus will forgive me, so it doesn't matter what I do because it's right. all about grace, right? And it isn't that way. And I don't, and I don't see that. I see the opposite of that in the Catholic Church, accountability and... So, you know. so, so just for the record, right? So for 2000 years, theologians and philosophers can argue or not argue, appear deeply into the whole issue of God's foreknowledge and, you know, time and the timelessness and time and our choices and how that works with God's sort of, uh, God's will and our choices and his, his permissive will and this and that. But, you know, that's, that's again, something that we can talk about, but, but I want to just say this, it, you know, right. Currently there's this whole thing like love wins and the end, everybody goes to heaven. Right. And right. that sounds really nice and loving and affirming. I mean, you know, love wins, right. everyone's going to go to heaven, but you know, really what's at stake with that is human is, is freedom and whether we have any free will be, be, because the whole, it doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter what choices you make. Right. Right. It doesn't matter because in the end, Love's going to win. God's everybody gets there. And, and that sounds great, but what really has, what, what's happened is it's sort of the flip side of sort of a hyper-Calvinist, God's going to send you to hell regardless of what you choose or do because right. only this is, God's going to just slide everybody into heaven regardless. So again, there is this real sense in the contemporary world, it doesn't matter. I can just live my right. life as I want to live it because in the end, God's cool. Right. And, and a cool God is just going to be cool with whatever I do. Well, letting me off the hook no matter what I do... In the end, that then the word mercy has no definition. There is no mercy, right? And and in the end, it reduces. It takes us one something essentially away from your humanity, right? I mean, part of uh, of our humanity is our capacity for free will, and right. our capacity to love, and our capacity to make choices and spiritual choices, Adam and Eve, and so on and so forth. And the thing is, at the end of the day. Um, this notion that doesn't matter what I believe, doesn't matter what I think, doesn't matter what I do, doesn't matter how I act, doesn't matter anything. You know, that sounds really great. You know, you're going to get a pass. Everybody's going to pass right. the class. All the students are going to get A's. Right. But at the end of the day, what that does is it really, it really minimizes it my humanity. It. it cheapens, it cheapens it and it minimizes my humanity. Um, so yeah, that's something we'll explore. It, you know, it cheapens, it cheapens the concept of mercy. If nobody gets punished, if nobody's held accountable, yeah. if nobody, you know, takes a hit for what they did, then how is it showing, if no, everybody gets a pass, then how is that showing mercy? Yeah, I know, you know, so like that class that I taught on Dante this last year that you, you took part in, it was interesting because as I said in that, you know, for Dante, there is this law of love in Dante's uh, Divine Comedy. That in the end, we all get what we, what we really ultimately love. If we really ultimately love God, you know, Jesus says, if you seek me, you shall find me, right? Right. You, you, you shall find the desires of your heart. Those who seek right. me shall find me. Uh, but the converse of that is th those who love things other than God. I mean, C.S. Lewis once said that in the end, there's only going to be two kinds of people. Those who bow their knee and say to God, thy will be done. Mm -hmm. And those to whom God says, sadly, thy will be done. Right. And in the end, what what's really at stake is is our humanity, I think, in that. Mm -hmm. So those are things to, yeah. Okay, so what else you got? Um, bigness of God. The the um, the Protestant church talks about God being very near and intimately involved in the minutia of my life, but it's 
it's all, you know, as if it's all just about me and my friend Jesus, you know. Um, and I know that's, that's not what they think. That's, that's not actually, but that's the, uh, that's the practical outcome. Right. You know right. what I mean? I mean, to be fair, I think that Protestantism, Protestants do have a doctrine of an infinite God, but it, it, what they do in practice is hyper-personalize our experience of him. Right. So it becomes, I only experience God as he impacts me. You know, as I meet him in nature in a sunrise or this or that, or as I know him in my heart, as he walks beside me. Now, now to be sure, Catholicism says we meet God in all those ways, but the, the, the sort of, the whole approach of Catholicism is that I am encountering an infinite God with a kingdom that's sort of, you know, beyond imagination and beyond measure. And it, and it pulls me into him rather than uh, right. me pulling him into me. Right. And so if everybody's sort of on a flat plane, you know, uh, uh, we're all just sort of intimate with God and all that. that. It sort of speaks to there being no authority, you know? I, I like a big universe, and I like I like feeling like God is so much bigger than me that I can't possibly, you know. Uh, besides, who, who am I to uh, decide what good and bad theology is? And that, in that sense, it doesn't mean anything to be a Protestant to me anymore because it's really just a type of Christianity that's just sort of a catch-all. You know? Yeah, I mean, you know, that's where we get into the heart of the different, one of the, you know, hearts of the differences between Catholicism and Protestantism. You know, the question is, did Jesus just commission his apostles? Like, like was his plan, here, here's the plan, guys. Here, it was the Great Commission. Uh, you guys write a book and then publish the book and then distribute the book so everybody can read the book. Uh, and then they can all work out their own theology and, and, <laughs> and find me. Right. Or did he say to him in the Great Commission, go and make disciples and teach them to obey me and build a church. You know, I actually can't find anywhere in the New Testament where Jesus commissioned them to publish, write a book and publish a book. The right. church decided that the, obviously the best way to get the message is for the apostles to write things down, right. right? And we have the scriptures, but at the end of the day, it has to do with the authority of the apostles building a church with apostolic authority. I like, I like how big the Catholic world is is the mm. Catholic worldview, you know, uh, the, the spiritual world, the kingdom, it's immense, it's multi-layered. And I, I love the thought that I'm just a tiny, tiny part of it. That's very comforting. There's all these people have gone before me and played a part in the story, you know, angels and, and saints and the great cloud of witnesses and uh, the evil one and martyrs. And it's just a huge story. And it doesn't it's only started since I've been investigating Catholicism. It's only now started to look that way to me. Right. Do you know what I mean? Right. You know, I mean, and that was kind of it for me too. I, I, you know, one of the things I think that occurred to me was that the Reformation kind of deconstructed Christianity. So it stripped it down to its like few key essentials. It's like saying, um, uh, okay, nutritionally, you know, you need this many grams of protein and this many grams of carbohydrates and this many vitamin, whatever. Right. And so what we've done is we've put that all into a nutrition pill, you know, right. right? Your meal pill or like, you know, your little meal drink, uh, like, you know, when right. we, as we're getting older, we're going to get our cup of insure or something. Right. And this is all you need. So, you know, just take your meal pill every day. Like it's on the Jetsons or something, right. you know, <laughs> pop your meal pill and you go, I guess it, met my minimal nutritional needs, but it's sort right. of, I feel like I'm missing out on a lot. And, right. and, and it was sort of, to me, like what the Reformation did, and it's been progressive through evangelicalism, is it strips Christianity down to like these sort of minimal right. essentials. You need to know that Jesus died and rose again. You need to know the Bible 
and there's like two or three things you need and here you are, this is the sort of like, you know, Christianity pill. And the kingdom is so big and so right. complex and like, that I feel like, yeah, I, I got my, you know, I got my meal shake or my, you know, my little meal right. pill, but I, I missed out on the banquet. Right. And that was for me, this kind of epiphany that as I began to investigate Catholicism was that there's this massive banquet. It's like, remember that old story about, well, the president of the Soviet Union came to America back in the 60s or 70s or whatever. And, you know, he came and they took him to a supermarket and he right. walks up and down the aisles of the supermarket and he can't believe that Americans have all of this stuff and all these products and all these choices and how amazing, like, all right. of this is. And that was what, to me, it felt like. like I came out of this sort of hyper-personalized, narrow um, sort of view of the kingdom and experience, especially evangelical, contemporary evangelicalism. And then all of a sudden you get introduced to the sort of the bigness and richness of right. Catholicism. And I'm like, oh my gosh, like I didn't know about that. that was that's what I was sort of, uh, when I was listening to that long lecture series, I thought, man, there's these these dudes, you know, Augustine and, and all these guys, Aquinas, and they're, these aren't just some guy who wrote a book one time. Right. These are these are the smartest guys of their generation. And these are the, these are guys who, who, uh, devoted their lives, took a vow of chastity or whatever, and devoted their lives to, to this. And, and then they would submit papers and then these papers would be reviewed. And this was no casual thing. And I'm, right. and I, I, I don't want to miss out on it. There's more topics. I know, yep. I know there's other things that you want to talk about when I, I can't wait to, for us to keep going down this path and yeah. picking up some more stuff and doing some side quests and we've got some fun stuff planned. So uh, when we get together, so this is going to be a pretty cool journey. So can't wait. Yeah. Until next yeah. time. All right. Thanks, Greg. We'll get back to the episode in a few moments, but first I want to share with you an ancient principle of Catholicism. While we are saved by faith, true faith seeks understanding. Christ imparts to us a holy curiosity. We want to learn and grow and come to know more and more of God's word, his will, and his works. The Catholic life should be an ongoing journey of discovery. So, if you're enjoying the Considering Catholicism podcast, then join me and other instructors for the next step in this journey by joining the Lakeshore Academy for the New Evangelization. Five years ago, we launched the Lakeshore Academy for the New Evangelization, or LANE as we call it, to foster a culture of faith-filled, lifelong Catholic learning in hearts, homes, and parishes. As the Dean of Lane, I invite you to join me and its other teachers for a wide range of learning experiences for adults, as well as for children and families. Lane offers structured courses in Catholic topics, both online and in person, as well as seminars, audio and video documentaries, and field trips, both real and virtual. There are already dozens of courses in our library, with new programs being offered all the time. To check out the catalog and schedule, and to learn more about how it works, visit lanecatholic.org. That's L-A-N-E catholic.org, where faith seeks understanding. Our time is winding down, 
But we end every episode by learning and leaning into one of the classic Catholic prayers. For those of you who are considering Catholicism, consider making this prayer a regular part of your relationship with God. Lord, teach us to pray the prayers of the church with all the saints. Today's prayer is known as the Anima Christi. It's the first prayer that we're going to learn on this podcast that comes from the mystical tradition in Catholicism. Now, what that means is that it invites us into contemplating the mystery of the gospel in the incarnation. Catholic prayers are usually named after the first one or two words of the prayer. And in Latin, anima Christi means spirit of Christ. This prayer was one of Ignatius Loyola's favorite prayers. Some say that he wrote it. Others argue that it existed in some form for a century or so before Loyola and that he adapted it and incorporated it into the Jesuit tradition. But in any case, it was and still is often used as an opening prayer for what are known as the spiritual exercises of Ignatius Loyola. More about those in a future episode. But briefly, for now, a key element of his spiritual exercises is to read slowly through a scripture passage pausing at each line or sentence to contemplate or even visualize it. And the Anima Christi prayer is used that way. As you pray it, stop at each line and try to open yourself to really understanding or grasping what that line means or signifies. If you do, you'll find that it invites you to enter deeply into the mystery of the incarnation and the power of the gospel. And that is a good place to go, as often as you can. The Anima Christi Soul of Christ, be my sanctification. Body of Christ, be my salvation. Blood of Christ, fill all my veins. Water of Christ's side, wash out my stains. Passion of Christ, my comfort be. O good Jesu, listen to me. In thy wounds I fain would hide, ne'er to be parted from thy side. Guard me, should the foe assail me. Call me when my life shall fail me. Bid me come to thee above, with thy saints to sing thy love. World without end. Amen. Thank you for listening. Considering Catholicism is produced by One Whirling Adventure, a 501c3 nonprofit organization with a simple mission to excite and educate people about historic Catholic Christianity and to equip them to live, share, and defend it in the 21st century. We depend completely on your generous donations. Learn more and consider supporting our ministry by visiting oneworlingadventure.org.